Thank you guys for being here. Happy Fourth of July! Uh, now, there's not uh, sometimes there's kind of a cross between what churches celebrate and, and things that happen from a government perspective. Fourth of July is always extra special to me because uh, there were many who gave their lives, men and women, uh, so that we could worship in freedom and gather together today. And so that is what we celebrate as a church. We are very grateful uh, that we get to be in a circumstance where we can gather freely. Uh, and again, some paid the ultimate price uh, for us to be able to do that. And so we are very very, very grateful for that today, and it's so good to get to spend time with you. All right, enough of that mushy stuff. Are you ready? If you got your Bibles, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and then Genesis chapter 47 as we continue studying the life of Joseph. One other exciting thing to get to tell you about is uh, we had a young man come forward for baptism last service uh, that we've been working with for quite some time, and so we will actually, uh, in the fourth service next week, do baptism. We are going to figure out how to do that in the best socially distancing way possible, uh, but we are going to figure out how to do that. Uh, if someone wants to be baptized, we can definitely figure out a way to make that happen, and so just wanted to share that exciting decision with you. That's coming up. Um, so this is another heavy lesson today. And so I want to encourage you, take notes. This is a great one to study and, and look back on. We're going to talk about righteous leadership today. Uh, and uh, this one has got some, uh, this one's got some tentacles to it. Okay. It's got some, uh, some extremities to it. It starts with this question. Have you ever felt like you were set up to fail before? You ever felt like you were set up to fail before? I know that I have on numerous circumstances. That's where you walk into a situation and you truly do feel like, Lord, I don't understand it. Uh, at home, at work, in my walk with you, I want to do what's right, but it just seems like there are so many obstacles in the way that it's so complicated, maybe I should just give up and not try. Hear me say this. God will always provide a way for you to do the right thing. In any circumstance, he will provide a way. So there's a great show on on Netflix that just came out that my family is loving called The Floor is Lava. How many of you watched The Floor is Lava? Raise your hand. There you go. Just a few of you. Okay, I'm telling you, it's a great show, right? Floor is Lava is awesome. In fact, uh, if you haven't watched the show, maybe you played it as a child. The Floor is Lava is a game that you play where you start off on one end of the room, like say the living room, for example, and all of a sudden you call out The Floor is Lava. And that means that you're trying to get from one end of the room to the other without touching the floor. And so like kids and, uh, and adults alike, I'll be honest. We jump from couch to couch, right? You jump across the room. Uh, and, and every now and again, one kid will be climbing on a table or something, but you just try to get from one end to the other uh, without touching the floor because the floor is lava. Well, on the video, on the, on the video game, on the Netflix show, uh, what you have is a situation where they walk into a room that's about the size of our sanctuary, and one example was they have it be the bedroom. And so uh, they're standing in this corner and they walk in, but there are thousands of gallons of water uh, across the room that have been dyed red with food coloring so that it looks like lava. And then what they do is they have to get from one side to the other, but there are just random things rising up from the water and they're getting all slick so that when people jump on them, they slip. If you ever watch the TV show Wipeout, very similar to the TV show Wipeout, except this concept of the floor is lava. Well, one of the things they do on the show that I I love is they show at the very beginning that there are ways to get to the exit. In fact, in many cases, there are a half dozen ways that they can get to the exit. But from this moment, it looks like it's impossible. It looks like they can't get there. But if they really stop and watch, the pathway of righteousness emerges and there is a chance to make it through. When it comes to your walk with Almighty God, navigating an impossible work situation, navigating an impossible family situation, navigating trying to do right in your relationship with God, when it seems like all these obstacles 
obstacles are popping up in your way and you just want to go through and justify sin. The Bible tells us God will always provide a way to do what's right. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Awesome verse to memorize if you don't have it memorized already. Here's what it says. Paul writes, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Underline what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Look at this. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Underline, provide a way out that you can stand up under it. Two powerful things happening in this verse. It says right off the bat that we can think that our situation is so complicated and that no one else has ever gone through what we're going through. This idea of American individualism spawns this idea that we are the only ones to ever have to deal with things as hard as they are today. What we find here in Scripture is the opposite. Paul says there is nothing new under the sun. There is no temptation. There is no struggle. There is no complicated path that you could have to walk that someone else has not walked before you. I used to bring all those problems to my dad. He was kind of the one-stop shop to figure out how to navigate a difficult problem. But when he passed away, he handed a really great resource to me, a man named Greg Wallace. Greg Wallace was like my dad's big brother. He was uh, on the board and may still be on the board of a large oil company based out of Houston, Texas, and he was a church planter almost 30 years ago, uh, back before the church planting movement had hit. And I'll never forget, dad said, if you got a problem, call Greg. Greg's been through it. Well, sure enough, over the last few years since Dad passed away, I'll call Greg Wallace, and our conversations always start out the same. I'll go, Greg, it's brutal. It's difficult. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Have you ever seen anything like my complicated, individualistic situation? And Greg, again, is in his 70s. Greg will always stop me and go, it was the summer 1964. Such and such was in office. I mean, he was just going through, and he's like, we saw that happen, da 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 here. And you know what? You're going to be okay. If you walk this path and you do this, you're going to be just fine. Do you have some people in your life like that? The reminder is here. There is no situation you are facing that is happening for the very first time. Do you realize that? The root of every struggle is not common to man. And what we find in this passage is the writer here, Paul, says, God is going to provide a way out for you. There is a way to get to the exit, even though the floor is lava, even though the furniture is slippery. There is a way to get to the exit. And he says, and you will be able to what? To stand. Can I tell you why the word stand is important? It doesn't say, and so you will be able to run at full speed like you always have. For a time, God's promise is not that you will get to run at full speed all the time. God's promise is that you will endure that you get to stand when the days are wicked and the days are difficult. He will provide a way out so that you can stand. It's a good word, isn't it, Arvia? His promise is not that you can keep running. You know what we believe in this country? It's a bull market all the time, right? Never any days of difficulty. It's just up, 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 and up. We just go, and tomorrow's going to be way better than it was today. That's not biblical. There are going to be some days of struggle. In fact, Jesus himself says in this world, you will have what? Trouble. But my peace I leave with you. It's a powerful thing to remember. When we feel like there is no way to win, God reminds us, first of all, there is struggle that you have that is common. 
And second, he comes back and says, and I have provided a way so that you can stand. You may not be running like you used to for a time, but I will provide a way for you to endure. It begs the statement here, write this down. In every circumstance, God has carved a path to righteousness. Let me say that again. In every circumstance, God has carved a path to righteousness. And just on that silly show, the floor is lava, you must find it. Find the path. When you're navigating a tough situation with your boss, find the path so that you can be a good employee, a good son or daughter, a good spouse or a good family member, and also an ultimate follower of Yahweh Almighty God, a servant of Jesus Christ. All of those things can work together and God will provide a way so that you can stand. It begs the question today as we read the life of Joseph, who does God call on to lead during a mess? Who does God call on to lead during a mess when it seems like things are so complicated that everything's going to fall apart? By the way, you could sum this up as a one-point sermon. He calls on the righteous to lead. He calls on the righteous to lead. Those who decide, I don't care my circumstances, we are going to find a way out of here and do what's right. Whether it be with your family, whether it be with your work, many of you work in government, God has called us to walk the righteous path as believers in Jesus Christ. So who does he call on to lead during a mess? We're going to look at some attributes of the life of Joseph here, and they fit for us today as well. Now flip over to Genesis 47, and we're going to start again in verse 11. Now just for the record, Joseph's situation is incredibly complicated. It's the reason that most pastors quit preaching Joseph in chapter 46, because there's a nice neat bow of ending of Joseph's struggle where he meets his father again, he reconciles with his brothers, and he's working for Pharaoh in the big job, and they go, great, roll credits. He lived happily ever after. Slave, there's a problem. Exodus 1. Exodus 1, the Israelites have been enslaved for 400 years. How do you get from roll credits in Genesis 46 to Exodus 1 where the Israelites are enslaved? We're about to read about it today and listen to me. God's hand is guiding the entire process. It's powerful, it's difficult, but it is something that we have set up over the last six months of studying these passages that I believe you're going to be able to catch and understand today. Read these with a powerful open mind. Are you ready? Again, Joseph's world is complicated. He's got his faith in almighty Yahweh God. He's just reconciled with his family. He works this big job for Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world at that point. And listen, they are on year one or two of the famine that's going to last seven years. A seven-year-long pandemic that seeks to end the world as they know it at this point. And listen, Joseph has saved up the food in the storehouses, and if the mob becomes if the mob becomes a group that decides to revolt and rebel, all they have to do is tidal wave overtake the army, and they will bust into the storehouses, and then there will be a massacre. Joseph is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, his family, his faith, his job, and he is the one that God has positioned to lead the people down the razor-thin path through the lava floor. Are you ready? Look at what happens in Genesis 47, and we're going to read verses 11 through 14. This is a mess that Joseph inherits. 
It says, so Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh's directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Roll credits. Da, da, da. They lived happily ever after, but they didn't. Look at verse 13. There was no food. Circle, highlight, and underline that. There's still a big problem. You can't roll credits. There's still a big problem. The world's still broken. There's no food. However, in the whole region, because the famine was so severe, both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. Stop right there for just a minute. He's got this great moment with his family. Things are going well. He's in the big job. He's not enslaved anymore. He's living his best life. And then all of a sudden, we still have the famine. It's at the very beginning, and this passage is so powerful because here's Joseph trying to navigate all this, but he has prepared for times of struggle. For many of you, as believers in Jesus Christ, your biggest problem in discipleship is that when times are good, it's easy to serve God, but when times are difficult, you're the one that throws your hands up and goes, why are you letting this happen to me, God? Why are you letting this happen to me? I thought I was your boy. God, why are you letting this happen to me? I thought I was your favorite. Why are you letting this happen to me? The answer to that question is what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble. Difficulty is on the horizon. We don't follow Jesus, so we'll be blessed. We follow Jesus that we might be forgiven and that we might endure times of difficulty and hardship. It begs the question again, who does God call on to lead during a mess? Number one, those who anticipate and prepare for struggle. Those who anticipate and prepare for struggle. Difficulty is coming. And you have to make the decision that you're going to follow God, not just when times are good, but when difficulty rears its ugly head because it's going to happen. It's the reason we teach Dave Ramsey. When we do financial peace, you know what one of the first principles of financial peace is? Dave Ramsey has you tithe, and he has you save money. Even when you're trying to dig out of a, even when you're trying to dig out of a big mountain of debt, you still start tithing because the money belongs to the Lord first and foremost, and you start setting aside money. Most people don't dig into crippling debt because they wanted to buy a new Corvette. You know how crippling debt takes place? I can tell you as one with experience. Crippling debt doesn't take place because you bought a whole bunch of stuff you didn't need. Crippling debt starts with buying a whole bunch of stuff you don't need, and then something catastrophic happens that's essential, and you didn't have any money set aside for it. And you'd already used most of your credit, and so here's what happens. All of a sudden, the brakes go out on the car, or the air conditioner goes out at the house, or you need to get something, or in our case, we ran into debt issues because our son got a diagnosis that required therapy that even with great insurance was a thousand bucks a month that we didn't plan on. And so guess what happens? You sit there and you go, whoa, we did not save for this. And guess what? It limits your influence later because you start digging into that debt because you start falling into a pattern that's gonna hurt you later. If you're taking notes, again, who does God call on to lead during a mess? Joseph anticipates and prepares for the time of struggle. Matthew Henry says this. Here's a good quote from him. We are never guaranteed that tomorrow will be as good or better than today. He said it again. We are never guaranteed 
that tomorrow will be as good or better than today. We think it's a bull market today, and so it'll be a bull market now and forevermore. Those are old world problems. Bear markets are old world problems. No, we will have trouble. We will have difficulty. Now, some of you would say, wow, pastor really could have appreciated this sermon about six years ago. Why why are you preaching it just now? You can still work on this now. Struggle, difficulty, they're going to happen. We've got to plan and trust the Lord as we prepare moving forward. Even football teams understand this. Back in the day, I played for Monterey High School football, and I played weak side linebacker and fullback. Just for the record, fullback doesn't carry the ball very often in a football game anyway. When you were a fullback that wasn't very good, you carried the ball even less. In fact, I averaged three yards per carry during my high school career playing football and playing fullback. The reason I can tell you uh, the math on that is because in my career, I carried the ball one time for three yards. And so that's how I got three yards per carry, all right? Now listen, my big full-time position is from my junior year forward, I started on special teams, specifically the kickoff team. I'm small, and I was like a bullet, you know? I could run down the field pretty good, and I played a position that we kind of called striker. The idea was I would run down and try to tackle the person um, that, uh, that, was, uh, that was running back the kickoff. When you do kickoff practice, 75% of the practice is running down the field trying to make the kickoff. The other 25% is what? The onside's kick. The onside's kick is the weird little kick that the kicker does to try to make the ball bounce, go 10 yards and bounce, so that the team that's kicking off can try to get the ball back. Because if you're losing, you only have the onside kick as your opportunity to get the ball back before the clock runs out. Now listen, your plan is not to be losing when you get to the end of the game. Your plan is that you'd be up by six or seven touchdowns going into the final minutes so that you don't have to do an onside kick. But you practice it every single week because you are preparing for that moment to struggle. You may need it, and you need to be ready just in case that moment comes about. When it comes to our faith, it doesn't mean that you have more faith if you go, I'm not prepared for the struggle because God's going to take care of me. I'm one of his favorites. It's the opposite. It says that when we endure struggle, we walk the path of the Son of God. We trust him when we prepare for those moments of difficulty, not just for our own hearts, but so that we can lead other people through those moments as well. If you're taking notes, it begs this question. Are wasteful habits limiting your future influence? Are wasteful habits limiting your future influence? It is not a faithless thing, but a faith-filled thing to anticipate and prepare for struggle. Now look at what happens next. This is where the passage gets a little bit dark. They start off by giving all the money, but look at verse five. They still have like three, or they still have four or five years of famine still to go. And it says in verse fifteen, when the money of all the people of Egypt was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph. Underline all Egypt came to Joseph. And they said, give us food. Why should we die before your very eyes? Our money is used up. Now stop there for just a minute. We have seen in our city when masses of people gather together and make demands. This is what's happening in this passage. But it's because the people have no food. Because they're starving to death. Their kids, their grandparents, they're coming together. But the mob has showed up at this point to say, we can't eat. 
And they've shown up and said, what are you going to do about it, Joseph? What is Pharaoh going to do about it? And very easily, that mob can turn into a massacre in an instant, either from the Egyptian government or from the mob itself breaking into the storehouses and taking the food. So Joseph, in this moment, has to walk the line of righteousness. He's a son to Jacob. Again, he's a servant of Yahweh God, and he's also a servant of Pharaoh, and he is the one that God has positioned as the judge among the people. Look at what happens next. He's so smart here. Joseph says, verse 16, then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since the money is gone. It says, so they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, their donkeys. Look at this. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. Now stop here for just a minute. I had to read several commentaries before I could really understand what was taking place here. They didn't just bring all their livestock. They're starving. They've shown up to Joseph. They have, they've shown up just them. And with their horses, they've shown up and said, what are we supposed to do next? And Joseph, understanding the severity of their circumstances, Joseph comes up with an idea and for ancient economics, this is brilliant. Joseph comes in and he says, this is not Pharaoh repossessing your livestock. He said, you still keep it. You still use your horses. You still use, own your livestock. And you are basically using that to plow your fields. You're using the king's equipment to plow your fields. What he has just done is diffuse the mob because he has said to them, go back, I'll give you food, and nothing changes for you except the piece of paper that Pharaoh owns your livestock. It's brilliant. He's diffused the mob, and listen, he's bought a year so that now the people can realize just how dire the pandemic is, and then they will be open to having a harder discussion in the years to follow. If you're taking notes, write this down. Who does God call on to lead during a mess? Number one, those who anticipate and prepare for struggle. And number two, those who creatively pursue peace. Those who creatively pursue peace. In this circumstance, when they've come in and said, give us the food or we're going to take it, he says, give us ownership of your livestock. You can still keep it. We're not repossessing. Give us ownership of your livestock, and then we will give you this food. It benefits Pharaoh, it benefits the people, and Joseph gets to walk the path of righteousness. If you're taking notes, write this down. A rigid response to a desperate individual is often met with outrage. A rigid response to a desperate individual is often met with outrage. This is especially true if you're dealing with someone in your family who is desperate. Remember, you to flex up against them and try to fight back against them in a harsh way, don't be surprised when you find a fist swinging back in your face. A rigid response to a desperate individual is often met with outrage. I want to give you an example of this. And Fourth of July always reminds me of it. I was working at a church in uh, north central Texas. And I'll never forget, um, while I was working at this church, it was Fourth of July weekend, we had just come back from youth camp, and uh, 
we had 30 students to baptize. 28 that had confirmed, but 30 was what we were hoping to baptize this particular Sunday. It's the Sunday just before the 4th of July, and this church was one of those churches, thousands of people, but they were one of the churches that had the huge American flag, and then a couple of times a year, they would click the button and bring the flag down, and during the services, you'd have this massive, you know, stage-wide American flag that was in the background. It was beautiful. It's one problem. The baptistry is behind the flag, where the flag comes down. And so we're sitting in staff meeting, and I go, man, we got 30 kids to baptize this coming Sunday. I said, we're about to have a whole bunch of families leave town uh, for, a, for a, a July 4th and beyond. And I said, we need to do our baptisms this week. And I said, how about this? Can we lift the flag up for the first few minutes of the service? And the very first service, there were three services. And I said, and then we can bring it down. It takes about eight seconds to bring it back down. We can bring it down and finish out the service. And the main supervisor for me said, oh, we're not touching the flag. And I said, but we got these kids to baptize. They've not baptized that many people on one Sunday. I mean, in, in maybe forever. And I said, well, surely we can find a way around this. And they said, we're not moving the flag. We're not doing the baptism. Well, that stirred an anger in me. I was young. But also, I'm telling you, Scripture says, here is water, why should I not be baptized? I'm telling you, there was just a major stirring in my spirit that something was off here. And so, I tried to make peace. I came up with a new idea. I went and I found a family in the church that had a swimming pool, big open front yard, and I said, here's what we'll do. We'll take the kids, we'll baptize them at this person's house, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll you know, video it and celebrate it with the church. I get back and my supervisor says there's not enough parking in that neighborhood for all the people that are going to want to come to this event. We're not going to allow that either. I'm like, you're kidding me. You're going to pull the parking card in the neighborhood on this? And I'm just getting so frustrated and so angry. But again, this is a powerful moment for me. It's, it's a part of who I am in Christ. This was more important. So I get angry, but I still have work to do. I ended up going and meeting with, that day, the pastor of a cowboy church. You ever heard of a cowboy church before? So cowboy churches are pretty cool. Cowboy churches, and in this particular case, this guy from time to time would actually preach on horseback in a big open air, uh, an open air space. I believe there were about 300 people that would come to this cowboy church. And so I go to meet with him. We were talking about student ministry, but I'm carrying all the anger of these meetings with me. So I walk in, and I'll never forget, the pastor looks at me, and he goes, son, you okay? He's got his cowboy hat on, and his eyes are squinted like this. He said, are you okay? And I go, I'm not okay. I'm having a tough time. I explained the story to him. He didn't say a word. He just sits there looking at me. I said, what do you think? And he goes, hey, such and such. He yells for one of his ranch hands, young uh, high school kid that was working for him. Hey, such and such. Kid runs up. Yes, sir. He goes, I think we need a new horse trough. And the kid goes, we just bought one like five years ago. And he goes, no, we need a new one. He said, and I want you to deliver it to the church up the road. He said, I want you to fill it up. He said, uh, if you set it out at this time of day, he said, the sun will heat it up and it won't be cool water. He said, it'll be nice, warm pool out there. He said, then 24 hours later, I want you to drain it, bring it back here and we'll set it up on our farm. What do you think about that? The kid knows exactly what's happened. He's grinning ear to ear and he goes, yes, sir, we can make that happen. We bought 
like a hundred watermelon. We did a fellowship outside. We baptized 30 kids. And not only that, the head pastor of the church came out. He was so excited about what was happening. He baptized the kids himself. And the supervisor that had given me so much trouble is there on the video just clapping and crying as the kids are baptized. I mean, it was nuts. I'm sitting there watching this thing just like, oh my goodness. The Lord was in a way where there was no way. And here's the deal. When we get mad, it doesn't do anything. Do you realize that? When you get mad, it doesn't do anything. All it does is work you up. In the end, we've got to trust God that he's the one in control and that Jesus is the prince of peace. That's what it says in the Old Testament, that the Messiah is the prince of peace. God has provided a way. He has made a way of righteousness, and we have to find it, and we have to walk it. It begs this question, does time with you inspire hope or escalate fear? Let me ask that again. Does time with you inspire hope or escalate fear? God calls on the righteous to lead through a mess. And by the way, lead does not mean in the top position. Lead means that you are a pillar of strength that God has provided for your specific area of influence and you do what's right. This city leads you to believe that whoever's in the top position is the one who gets to make all those decisions. No, you still get to decide who you are. You still get to decide who you serve. You still get to decide what ultimately we believe about Almighty God. It's up to you to make that decision. Don't pass the buck to somebody above you. Lead where you are. Stand and do what's right. Let's keep moving. Our last verses, and these last ones are tough. You ready? Verse 18. Joseph's done right. He took their money. He doesn't repossess the livestock. He takes the ownership for Pharaoh. And then it says, when that year was over, there's still somewhere between four, three and four years of famine left. When that year was over, all the people came and they said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, look at this, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Stop right there for just a minute. After a year of realizing just how dire their circumstances are, instead of coming in as a demanding mob, Joseph's kindness and peace call the people to come in and they go, this is not good. They said, we've already given you our livestock, the ownership of our livestock. They go, all we have left is our land and our own bodies. You see, in the ancient world, they're one and the same. Without the land, they can't produce for themselves. Without their physical bodies, I mean, obviously they have no freedom. So they come to him and they go, we either have to give ourselves to Pharaoh or die. And not just us, but our relatives, our friends, our kids, the people that have bound themselves to us. They realize the severity of their circumstance. Now look at what happens next. This is heavy. Verse uh, Verse 19, it says, why should we perish before your eyes? 
we in our land as well. Buy us in our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. Verse 20, so Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. And the Egyptians and all of their, uh, the Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. Look at this. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Stop right there for just a minute. Read between the lines on what's happening here. The situation is so dire and so difficult. Joseph looks at them and goes, guys, you have nothing left. They go, we know. What are we supposed to do? Why are they having this conversation with Joseph? Because he had been a slave himself. Because he had been in servitude himself. His brothers sold him into slavery. The one that they could go to and talk to about this unthinkable decision for their survival was someone who understood how brutal the path was for them to walk. How do you get from Genesis 47 to Exodus 1? It happens because the land runs out of food because the people didn't plan ahead. And all of a sudden they look at Joseph and they go, we trust you, dude. We trust you. You've got the food. You planned ahead. We've heard the story of how God restored your family. We've heard the story about how you planned ahead and translated the vision for Pharaoh. You'll give us a fair deal. And they go to him and say, what do we do? If you're taking notes, write this down. Who does God call on to lead during a mess? Number one, those who anticipate and prepare for struggle. Number two, those who creatively pursue peace. And number three, those who are approachable during the unthinkable those who are approachable during the unthinkable. The man who had once been a slave was now negotiating the terms of enslavement for the entire world. Look at my eyes just for a minute. There are some of you that have gone through some pretty rough junk in your time. And you sit there and you go, God, why? Why have you allowed me to go through this thing? All you had to do was snap your fingers and I could have gotten out of it. All you had to do was speak the word and the pain could have ended. Why have you allowed this to happen to me? The answer is the story of Joseph. Why did God allow him to be enslaved? Why did God allow him to be wrongfully accused? Why did God allow him to have all that heartache and struggle, to allow him to have the foreknowledge that millions of people were going to struggle and possibly go hungry? Why? So that he could lead for such a time as this. Because there was so much good that could come from it for him and into the future generations. The whole world shows up and goes, what do we do, Joseph? All we have left is our bodies and our land. And Joseph goes, I've been where you are. I've been where you are. And then what we're going to study next week is Joseph gives them the deal of a lifetime. When he could have held their feet to the fire, instead, Joseph deals so fairly with them, only someone who had been enslaved himself could have navigated those waters. It begs our final question today. Are you ready? Can you empathize with the helpless? Can you empathize with the helpless? Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9, 36 says this. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Almighty God 
who is the one that could look down on us in our struggle, is the one that actually saw us with eyes filled with compassion. And he understood how hard it was to be human. Do you view the rest of the world like that? Or if they don't achieve your standard, do you write them off? If that's you, you will never be the righteous leader God has intended for you to be. I told you this was a heavy one. That's why pastors skip this chapter, all right? I'm telling you, we're going to stick through them because it's this type of humanity that I think describes the world that we live in right now. I love you. All right, if y'all would close your eyes. We've gone a little bit long, okay? If y'all would bow your heads and close your eyes. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me, we call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time. It's just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I would start to prepare and anticipate struggle? With nobody looking around but just me, if that's you, remember, that doesn't mean that you hope for bad things to happen, but you'd say, today, today's a special day. I'm not just going to believe that today's, tomorrow's going to be just as good as it was today. If that's you and you'd say, Zach, pray for me, I need to start anticipating and preparing for struggle so I can lead others out of it. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you. That takes courage. Thank you. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But just pray this simple prayer. Lord, Woken. Maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I would take the time to creatively pursue peace? Would you pray that I would honestly try to figure out ways, just like that cowboy church pastor did for me, where I can find the pathway to peace? If that's you and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. If you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you for that. I'm going to pray for you, but if that was you, I usually will pray this prayer. God, put your thoughts in my mind and your words in my mouth. God, put your thoughts in my mind and your words in my mouth. Did you know I pray that same prayer every time before I get up to preach? All four services every Sunday. If that's you, feel free to pray that simple prayer. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? God has allowed me to go through the unthinkable, but I believe it is because he wants to use me to help others. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, and that has been revealed to you today by the Holy Spirit, I want to encourage you just to lift your hand where you are right now. If that's you, please lift your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pray for us. If that was you, I want to encourage you. Thank God for your struggle. Just tell him thank you. And then say, I'm ready to be used. I'm ready to be deployed. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Lord, I thank you for the story of Joseph. Lord, you are setting up just an amazing journey for these people. And Lord, you are placing the focus squarely on you. Lord, I thank you for the way that Joseph lived for you. I thank you for the path that's been carved for us by Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here today 
who are anticipating and preparing for struggle, that they would not look forward to dark days, but Lord, that they would be prepared for them, that they might be able to stand and lead when the difficulty comes. Lord, I pray for those who are creatively pursuing peace. I pray that as they cry out to you, as they cling to you, Lord, I pray that you would put your thoughts in their mind, your words in their mouth. And Lord, for those who have gone through the unthinkable, I pray they would not point the finger of blame at you, but rather hold open their arms and cry out, here am I, send me. Use me for your glory, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.